Hey everybody, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. So I just have to start off by saying that I'm feeling a little bit threatened. I was unable to record with you all for our last episode. So we had guest uh, host Cindy Nichols from Minnesota Campus Compact and she did such a great job. I'm, I'm not sure there's a place for me anymore. No, there still is. You're completely the voice of the Compact Nation podcast. <laughs> but I will say, Cinda did an excellent job. She hit the ground running. And she sent me an email afterward and indicated that we helped make her dreams come true because she always wanted to be on a radio program. And even though we're not technically a radio program, she said we helped uh, fulfill one of her dreams. So that's what we do around here, right? Yeah, just making dreams come true. Well, it was it was great, and we're looking forward to having uh, more guest hosts in the future. Yeah, for me, uh, just one more reminder of the incredible number of talented people working across our network. And so it's uh, it's a lot of fun to have more voices participating in these conversations. Yeah. Well, we're going to start today with just a couple of sort of recent news items where the work we do is kind of front and center. And the one that I wanted to bring up real quick is just that I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa today at Coe College. And on my drive across the state this morning, listening to NPR, heard um, a talk show program about Amazon's search for a second corporate headquarters and the factors that they're considering to be the most important to that search. And Right up at the top is the higher education system of whatever city they would pick, really looking for quality colleges and universities that are strong partners in the city's economic development. So that was very interesting and encouraging to me, um, I think speaks to the value of really investing in higher ed. Yeah, I think it's a strange time to be involved in discussions about higher education. All of the economic data shows the value to individuals of a college degree has never been higher, and yet we hear all these questions about the continuing relevance of higher education. We see companies you know, explicitly discussing, as you were just saying, Emily, the importance of having a strong higher education system in the regional or urban context, and yet the same people who say they want to attract more companies also systematically defund public higher education and, and other resources for higher education. So. It, it's it's an odd time. We we see families willing to you know work incredibly hard to afford a college education, which shows that people value it. And and it's an odd thing to be in a position so often of having to defend higher education when all of the sort of market indicators are that it's of the utmost importance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we just need to keep pointing to things like this, keep drawing those connections. Um, you know, more and more universities and and colleges embracing anchor institution models and, and roles, and I think that matters a lot, really talking about those things. So the other thing we wanted to touch on, Andrew, you've done a little bit of work this week on some federal policy and wanted to just give you a chance to, to update everybody on that and how they can get involved. Yeah, so I think most people are aware that the president has indicated he will not be extending the program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or the DACA program. This, as I think most of our listeners know, uh, gave a legal status and the opportunity to work to people who had been brought into the United States without documentation by their parents when they themselves were children and who are, you know, staying within the law and on a path to an education or in the military or have employment, those kinds of things. And so there's all of a sudden nearly a million young people in the United States who by definition are doing all the right things who now face both uh, a lack of work opportunities, educational opportunities, and also uh, potentially deportation. And so we are working against that with partners to try to ensure that Congress will take action to create the opportunity to be here legally permanently and, and a pathway to citizenship for these people who are valued members of our communities in so many different ways and who really have never known another country than the United States. And uh, so we've been working with a group called Forward.us, which is really kind of leading the work uh, in immigration reform and trying to get everybody in our network to join with us in this effort 
to make contact with their members of Congress to let them know that you want the Dreamers, this group of young people, to be able to stay here in their communities, contributing, contributing to our country, our economy. Uh, these are, you know, again, I think this group of young people has distinguished themselves by their willingness to stand up at great risk to themselves and make the case for what is right. And that's exactly the kinds of people we need in this country. That's the sort of values that Campus Compact represents. Um, so again, we are, as always, a nonpartisan organization. We don't pick sides in elections, but we can advocate within our uh, kind of context on issues that are relevant to us, and this one really is. So we are asking everybody to uh, to join in that effort and, uh, and, and yeah, take a stand. Let, let your members of Congress know that this matters to you. Well, I think that's fantastic. I know that in Iowa, many of our college and university presidents have spoken out publicly and, and certainly to their campuses about this issue, you know, being in a position to have had their lives touched by many of these young people, knowing they have many of these young people on their campuses who are successfully contributing and wanting to advocate for them. So I see here that it's fwd.us. That's exactly right, fwd.us. And yeah, if you can go to their website and there's really specific guidance on ways you can take action. Fantastic, great. Okay, so um, JR, anything else on the front end for today? Nothing for my end. Okay, so I now get to introduce um, the amazing interviewee that I had this week. I talked to Virtus Robinson. He is actually the first national director of the Democracy Commitment. And the Democracy Commitment is, is a really similar sister organization to ours, committed to nonpartisan uh, nonpartisan ways of advancing democracy in higher education, specifically advancing the ways in which community colleges are supporting democracy um, with programs, projects, curricula, engaging students in civic learning and democratic engagement. So a lot in common with what we're focused on. And he had a very interesting perspective, um, having worked in community colleges, having served as a tenured assistant professor of history and African-American studies with Monroe Community College in Rochester, New York for 10 years, and several other roles and just a lot of great higher education experience. So we were able to sit down and talk about um, community colleges, their unique uh, ways of doing this work and making contributions and what we can learn from that. And so I'm going to go straight to this interview. So Virtus Robinson, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Really appreciate you being willing to be on today. You are now the national director of the Democracy Commitment, uh, which was founded to mirror for community colleges the American Democracy Project. So can you talk a little bit about why you think college, community colleges needed their own organization and kind of what that's added um, to the landscape? Oh, sure. And, and thanks for having me, by the way. Um, and uh, and what what this goes down to is 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 how um, organizations or national organizations work. And um, the American Democracy Project uh, was founded uh, in 2003 by George McAfee uh, here at um, AASCNU. Um, and uh, I believe that our founders, uh, uh, Dr. Brian Murphy, who is the president of De Anza College, and the late Bernie Ronan, who was the vice chancellor of the Maricopa Community College Systems in um, Arizona, um, approached uh, George McAfee because around that time, um, the same around time of the Crucible moment, even before all of that, um, there was a need um, for more civic learning, civic engagement, democratic learning, democratic engagement uh, focused on community colleges. Um, and they had approached uh, George McAfee, who, um, who had founded the American Democracy Project because of all of the great things that they were doing, the programs, the initiatives, and moving that dial. Um, but unfortunately, uh, there are no community colleges that are members of AASCNU. So, they could, so community colleges could not be members of AASCNU either. And so uh, George told them, instead of trying to join ADP, create your own specifically for community colleges. 
And so um, to really answer your question, so that's why we, we decided to, um, to create the democracy, com- the democracy Commitment, or TDC. Um, but to really answer your question as why, um, to why do community colleges need their own inst- um, organizations, really, and this is what I have to answer on a, almost a daily basis, and that is, uh, you know, why TDC is necessary when you have other organizations, other projects and everything, and some of them even include uh, community colleges. But that is, the th- that is why, because they include community colleges. They're inclusive of community colleges, but there aren't that many organizations that are exclusive of community colleges. In other words, that community college is the sole focus. Um, you know, a lot of times when, um, before I, I, um, I was a part of the democracy commitment, I would go to a conference, um, as a member of community college, sometimes I was the only one in the room. Um, and so the conversation was, was not geared and not focused on community college. It was on the four year public school or university or even a private four year, which has a different um, uh, need or different challenges and different opportunities than community colleges. And so what I had to do was I had to adopt or adapt what they were saying to what my experience was. And so um, instead of always adapting and instead of trying to uh, recreate uh, things that are for community colleges and and then still feeling like there is no real attention or focus, why not have an organization that does give community colleges that attention that, it, that they need and the focus uh, being completely on community colleges? Um, and I can even talk about how um, a lot of community colleges feel that they're, they, they're being treated as second-class institutions. Um, and that is the general regard that, that um, nationally, not for everyone, but nationally, that is a general regard of community colleges as this, you know, 13th grade, um, people go there because they have nowhere else to go, and that's where the rejects go, and because they were rejected yeah. from real schools, I mean, that type of thing. Um, and, yeah. and even though none of that is true, and sometimes it is, <laughs> um, uh, to be honest about the situation, Look, community colleges are not 13th grade. I taught there for 10 years at a community college. I was challenged on a daily basis. Some of my some of my um, my students went on to Ivy League. Some of them went out on to military. Some of them went into the workforce. I mean, um, I, I I never pulled any punches. I mean. I I taught, excuse the expression, my behind off. I mean, uh, (laughs) you know, and and um, and and we and community colleges need that attention. Um, And I don't want to continue going on. I know there are more questions. But when I was traveling last year um, and I went to Delta College in, in Michigan, and um, and I was talking about how community colleges are democracies colleges, and um, community college students are democracy students, and be proud that you're here because you have a direct connection to the community in which this college is serving. Um, one student actually came up to me with tears in his eyes and said, "Thank you, thank you for reminding me why I'm here and making me feel good about why I'm here." Um, and why I do what I do. So, um, so yes, to answer your question in a long <laughs> explanation, <laughs> but that's why this uh, TDC was needed and continues to be needed. Well, it's clear you're passionate about what you do. I don't know if I've ever heard someone say they taught their behind <laughs> off, but I like it. <laughs> Um, so I, I think your your passion for what and everything you just said kind of answers this. But you know you have a varied background as a scholar and an educator. Why did you take this on? What what really made you want to want to take on this job and this project? And sometimes I ask myself that <laughs> very same question: sure. How does a person go from being coming from being a community college professor? to directing and, and running a nonprofit organization without, you know, really having the, the experience of doing so. 
Um, and, you know, and why would I do that? Why would I take that on? <clears throat> For one thing, let me be honest about the situation. I miss the classroom. I really, really do. Um, that, I mean, it didn't matter if I slept the night before, if I had a bad night, a bad day. As soon as I stepped into that classroom, um, I fed off the energy of my students. Um, every day was, I mean, I had one of those jobs where I didn't even have an alarm clock. I woke up like really super early, like, okay, what are we going to do today? You know, what, what light bulbs are going to go off? You know, and I was really excited about my job, but also being, um, a, a professor that integrated civic responsibility into all my classes, um, service learning into all of my classes, um, as well as being web enhanced and writing intensive and all of that, um, I felt that there was a need for an advocate for more of, of what I was doing in my own classes and what my college was doing with the community, Monroe Community College in Rochester, New York. Um, and also um, what I see other community colleges doing, De Anza College, Mount Wachusett College, uh, Lone Star um, College System, um, uh, Sinclair, uh, Mesa Community College, the Maricopa, all the Maricopa system. Um, and I don't want to like leave anyone out because we have about 90 uh, members, so I want to start naming them. But, um, but a lot of people do not really know what goes on um, in in these classrooms, um, what impact they're making with their communities, um, what the students are doing, and the impact that the faculty are making um, in these communities and with um, our uh, democracy students. Um, and so that's one reason why I took the job. It wasn't because anything was wrong at my college. I wanted to like get out of there, you know. It wasn't anything of that nature. And for one thing, I want to go back to teaching. Now, whether it's part-time adjunct online, which I created a lot of online classes in African-American history and in world history. Um, and um, I still want to do that. I don't want to lose that touch with the classroom, which I think is very important for someone in my position. Um, and, um, but there was an opening and, you know, and I go back to that moment when, um, when I heard that there was an opening and I raised my hand and said, you know what, <laughs> I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm tenured um, and, um, and I can do this. I feel that I could do this. Um, I saw firsthand in the classroom the impact of this work that could have on students and the community. And I want to advocate for it. I want to spread this gospel. Right. You know? Well, so uh, share, share the gospel with us. Why <laughs> is service learning and community engagement important for community colleges? Why does that matter? Well, um, for one thing, um, I wouldn't say service learning is, is so important, but the service learning part where they are engaging in the community is part is is very, very important. Well, I mean, if you think about it, even in the name community colleges, I mean, a lot of times we, we forget that the, the whole purpose for, you know, the colleges, yes, to serve the community, but to really to give more people um, uh, a more opportunity for education. Um, I mean, to democratize our education, our higher ed system. That was one of the reasons why we created community colleges in the first place. Um, of course, I mean, there, there are books about this. There, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of generalizing it. Um, but, uh, but the thing about it is that uh, when, if we want a more engaged uh, educated, informed citizenry, um, we have to look to community colleges. Uh, we have to open up um, the doors of education and opportunity to more people. Not, not many people can, not, uh, not everyone can go across the state um, or in a different state and go to college. Not everyone can afford a private uh, tuition. I don't know how I did, let me tell you. <laughs> I went to Boston University and right now I think the tuition is like 50, 60,000 um, for just tuition. It was 30,000 when I was going there and I, and I come from a very impoverished background. Um, I used to live in the projects um, and 
um, and I was the last um, um, uh, child uh, uh, born um, to my family, a family of, um, of seven. And um, and so when when but I was able to get scholarships and everything in order to go. Not everyone is so fortunate to to get scholarships, and and it wasn't a full ride, let me tell you, because I'm still paying for it. But <laughs> yeah. but but, um, but with that, but what what I've seen, you know, for for community colleges, is that community colleges serve the communities in which their students come from. Um, and so when you have a service learning project, and some people would, would disagree with me, and you're more than welcome to, but even if it's an episodic volunteer project, if they are volunteer, if volunteering at a soup kitchen for a weekend or two, just as, I mean, just as long as their reflection and there's, is tied right. to um, the, the curriculum that's going on and there's a reason for it, not just because it's the right thing to do, but even if it is um, set up that way, think about it. These students are volunteering at a soup kitchen in their own communities, in their own neighborhoods. Um, and so, um, and that is what, that is the beauty of community colleges because if you engage the community with community people who are going to your community college, yeah, you know there is more. Um, there is a there is a more opportunity for an extended, sustained, impactful, meaningful um, community engagement um, that way, rather than someone that just came came. I, I use New York State came from Harlem or uh, New York City and going to school in Buffalo and doing something in a community that they know nothing about. There's no history that they that they are a part of. And, you know, they're just going for the weekend and then they go right back to New York City when they're done. These students, um, the majority of their lives and the majority of their time is not spent on the college campus, but out in the community in the first place. So to, for their community and the people in the, and the members of the community to see our students out there leading and helping and and everything of that nature reinforces the idea that community college students are the social capital of their communities and not only that but that community colleges are in fact and again people will argue with me but <laughs> community colleges are in fact anchor institutions of their communities yeah well i've certainly seen that here in iowa and you know, you kind of led into another area where I had some questions because I think the traditional paradigm of service learning is that you've got this, you know, affluent student who doesn't know what poverty is like and so you need to send them out in the community so that they better understand poverty and want to do something about it, right? I'm sorry, that's, I was about to laugh. I'm sorry. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, but that's the traditional paradigm, yes, right? Yeah. And that's and that's not what you're describing. You know, you're describing students that are more likely to have had these experiences themselves. What does that look like and how is that different than maybe this has been done traditionally? Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, it's better for me to give you an example than to um, to tell you uh, because what I've experienced is that I can't overgeneralize anything when it comes down to uh, uh, community colleges. Every community college is completely different. <laughs> I'm not joking yep. about that. Yep. Um, like even in the state of Michigan, I, I visited about three or four community colleges. One was um, uh, in, the, in, in, in between soybean fields. It may have been cornfields, but I wasn't sure. It was in the wintertime. <laughs> so I couldn't see that much. But it was like if, if you didn't have a car, you couldn't get there. Um, another one was, you know, uh, really, really close to uh, Detroit. And one was in Detroit, and another one was in the suburbs of Detroit. So, I mean, they all have um, completely different um, uh, needs, different opportunities, and different challenges. So, I, I mean, so let me just give you an, an example, because I can't generalize uh, the impact, and um, uh, it sometimes it's by community, and sometimes there is no impact uh, for, for different reasons, and as well as 
uh, administrative support or lack thereof can really, really derail some of some of these um, these uh, these experiences, especially when someone or administrator or a college is so focused, excuse me, on workforce development without seeing the tie between workforce development, community development, and community engagement and these students. So um, let me just go to. Um, when I was a professor at Monroe Community College in um, Rochester, New York, and I was teaching an African American history class as well as a U.S. history class, and um, and I and I was doing some research on how 50 years ago there used to be, uh, there was a race riot that happened right up the street from our um, down, our uh, former downtown campus, which just recently moved, um, and um, and a lot of people that lived in that neighborhood, including myself, that grew up in that neighborhood, didn't even know that a race riot had happened. It had been covered up so so well. Um, but they were coming up to the 50th anniversary, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to use some of some techniques that I that I learned at. Um, at, a, um, at an honors institute called um, Places Text. And so we, we went out into the streets, we saw all these, um, these, these images of, of the riots, which I like to call um, uprisings. And, um, and we saw all these, and we, we noticed what this, where the streets were, but we were like, this doesn't look like this anymore. This street does not look like this. Where are the buildings? Where are the businesses? And people like to blame the riots for that. As soon as that the riots happened, then the businesses left because um, these people destroyed their own neighborhoods. Um, and that was the narrative, really. Um, and then, and then when when we went out to, into the streets, um, I, I I I remember it like it was yesterday. One of my students was like, "Wait, um, you realize that I was there 50 years ago?" I was like, "Excuse me." <laughs> My, my student who was like 63, 64 years old was just like, yeah, I was there 50 years ago. I used to live wow. in this neighborhood. Um, and that's why I love community colleges, by the way. I mean, I had students who were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, including ones that were like 16, 17, 18, <laughs> and everything right. in between. Um, and uh, and so he was just like, yeah, I was out there that, that night. I was throwing rocks into them. And let me tell you, there was a building here. There was a building there. There was a store here. And every time we used to um, go by this store, they used to watch us really closely. They wouldn't allow us in because they thought that we were still something. I mean, these stories started coming out that had never been told before. And what we realized was that Martin Luther King said, and um, you know, during this time, that riots were the was the language of the unheard. We realized that people's stories were still unheard to this very day. So my students decided that they took that experience of places text by utilizing your your senses, what you see, what you witness, what you smell, who, what you hear, as a textbook, and they turned it into a walking tour. Um, they identified certain um, certain landmarks where things happened, um, the uh, the historical transformation of the community of which they came out of, and which I did too. Um, and um, and when they did that, uh, the first tourists were uh, was uh, the the whole uh, eighth grade class of of a local uh, middle middle school, about eighty students. Um, led by my students, telling the story of their neighborhoods. Um, and by the end of that summer, um, after they were doing a lot of uh, co co commemoration events, over 400 people went on these tours um, uh -huh. that we did for the, um, so that was our service learning project. Uh, fast. That's so different yeah. than a lot of the yeah. examples you hear. I, that's really amazing. So, I mean, was that episodic? I mean, kinda. But what, right. but what they, but what they um, came up with was this tour book that are not that's now in libraries now. Um, it, it it prompted my, the scholar in me to say, okay, there's more to the story. Um, so I started to do more and more with with uh, uh, with more uh, classes. Afterwards, so it was like two years every semester, adding on to what that initial um, uh, class uh, gave birth to, if you will, founded. Um, and not only that, but then I started to do um, the history, the historian in me, 
um, started to do even more research as a trained historian and found out that there was a whole community that was wiped out because of um, urban renewal and pushed into a, into a historically white section uh, a decade before the riots that gave birth to a lot of racial tension that led to the riots. In other words, my students um, rewrote the history of these riots. And, and now we know that they were uprisings. Wow, that's, that's a fantastic example. And I, I really, there's a couple of threads from that I want to pick up, actually. So one of the things you mentioned is administrative support for this. President's not necessarily seeing the connection between these efforts and workforce development. I deal with that. Uh, what's your, make your pitch. I'm a community college president. Why should I invest administratively in coordinating these kinds of experiences? Well, um, the first thing I would say, because you're a community college president, that um, that I, I know that workforce development is is top is a is a top priority. But if you if you ask what these workers, I mean, what these employers want, they don't they know no uh, they not only want workers. That are um, that are skilled technically, they want those quote unquote soft skills as well, those civic skills, those community skills. For how can they really uh, work with clients under and without understanding those clients, without uh, being able to deliberate, with without even to um, to to know how to work in teams and things of that nature, of which civic learning and skill building. Um, give students the 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 uh, so in other words, workforce development and civic skill building go hand in hand to produce the workers that employers want. Not only that, but we have seen and we have studied and we have the proof that students who are civically engaged or engaged in their communities have higher retention rates, higher completion rates, higher successful rates, and that's exactly what you as a community college president want. Higher success rates, higher completion rates, and higher retention rates. And we see that connection between civic engagement, civic learning and skill building, as well as community engagement to those, uh, to those rates. Um, and, 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 and also, to really fulfill the mission, as well as the reason for why that community college there is there in the first place, to really serve the community. So that's that's my sales pitch. If I was in an elevator talking to, you know, a college <laughs> I like president, yeah. I like it. The other thread I wanted to pick up, you have uh, mentioned a couple of times your identity and background as a scholar of African American studies. So how do you think community colleges can effectively respond to the current climate in our country? What does democracy need from them right now? Hmm. That is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the, uh, well, I mean, the, the number one thing that our democracy needs right now is, is more informed engagement. Um, and uh, it's, it's not just engagement, you know, it's not just go out there and vote, but be informed about that, be intentional about that, uh, uh, and also be critical about that as well. Um, that's what we need. We, we need more critical thinking on the political side of things. We need more political, we need more critical thinking on the community engagement side of things. Um, and, 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 and just one thing that I'm going to be doing in the next, uh, in, a, in about a couple of weeks, I'm going up to Broome Community College, and it's going to be like a, a, a fun event that I'm going to do, but it's really serious, and it's the whole fake news, real news thing. So we're doing a whole little game show um, at, at Broome Community College about can, can, you, can, you, uh, can you spot fake news? But what we're going to be really um, teaching and training is uh, for people to question everything. And that's the beauty of the liberal arts and humanities. Um, and, and we've kind of lost a, a lot of that. Um, 
Um, and also, one thing to, um, that, that we need is that we need to understand all sides, not one side or the other, but all sides, in order to make informed decisions. Um, so it's one thing to get out the vote and say you need to vote and have people vote. It's another thing to question people and also to hold people up to their their promises and also really not be virtually represented but actually represented. I think this is what our democracy needs. Uh, one of the things that our democracy needs, uh, um, to be honest about the situation. Yeah. We yeah. also need more representation that reflects the diversity of our nation on the on on the um on the the from 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 the bottom to the top yes we just had a black president but it's a shame when you have the senate and you only have one person of color or two people of color of of a hundred person senate that and that's not representative representative of the racial um and ethnic makeup of our country um, so, and, and even at the bottom, um, representation um, uh, of, of, of people of color and diversity as well as, um, and sexual, um, sexual diversity as well, not just, um, and gender diversity and not just um, uh, race and ethnicity. So we really do need to do that. And it is not so, it's not just because people aren't voting, people aren't um, go, uh, being elected and whatnot. Because let me tell you, I did not start voting until I was 30. Wow, okay. And I, and I had been teaching for a couple of years prior to that. As a community college professor teaching history and African-American studies, knowing full well the history of the Voting Rights Act and why people fought and died, I still believed that um, my voice did not count um, that no one cared. They will, they will always do whatever they wanted to do. And also I was kind of intimidated by the process. And, you know, I was really uh, disengaged um, up until the election of 2008 when I realized that, hmm, what is really going on here? And, and I think it's time. Um, and then I brought my students on that journey as well, including a 56-year-old um, student um, that that through the course of our being informed, he had been incarcerated for the majority of his life, and he realized that now that he was off the books, he could vote um, through me taking myself as well as my classes through this process. Um, and in that election, he voted for the first time and wrote about it um, as a reflection paper for extra credit that I gave. Um, and they were so moved when they helped him at uh, the learning center because his writing skills were not up to par. Um, but that's why I love community colleges because they have great resources and writing centers and things like that to help our students, excuse me, and to help our students be successful. Um, and when um, they were moved by that, they submitted it to the local newspaper and they published it. So we don't know the impact that he made just um, just by ref by a reflection paper in a community college class. So what our democracy needs is we need more inform informed engagement. We need more critical thinking. Uh, we need more action. And we don't need we really do not need to put people down who want to resist that want to rally, that want to advocate for what they believe in, even on our on our college campuses. So um, that, in a nutshell, is what I is what I believe and what I stand for, and what the democracy commitment is here to do. That's that's very interesting. So I have one final question for you, and it goes back to something you said at the beginning about just sort of the perception of community colleges being kind of the second-class citizens of the higher education sector. And that's a, a thing, something I'd like to flip the script on, too. So what can the rest of higher education learn from community colleges? Wow. <laughs> oh, boy. If I, if, I mean, I do have answers to that, but... <laughs> I'll make you pick one since we're, we're getting long on our time. Okay, okay. Okay, so what can the rest of the higher ed learn from community colleges? Yep. Um, and so what I would say to that 
is open doors. Open the doors of opportunities to more people, not just the ones that make perfect, perfect scores, not just the ones that have, you know, history or legacies in their families. Open the doors to those that that their um, their parents uh, never received a higher education. Open the doors to those that um, that are trying to make their lives better. That spent some time incarcerated. Don't turn them away. Don't turn them away if they could. They can't afford tuition. If they can't afford to pay, I've 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 seen people be turned away um, because they couldn't afford to pay a $25 parking ticket, <laughs> you know, because, you know, they were coming to, to, to campus and they didn't have a parking pass. I mean, little things like that, be open and be warm and, and receptive um, to our students with welcoming arms, help them, give them the resources that they need and don't expect for them to always ask for them. Um, so, and I think that that's something that community colleges do very, very well and try so hard to, to work on and to, and, and, um, and that's why I love, um, uh, organizations like my own organizations like Campus Compact, especially, um, organizations like, um, and, and I'm drawing a bank right now, but, uh, achieving the dream, um, and, yep. um, and an or and um, AACC and AAC and U and things like that because they work toward that and when they focus on community colleges always not just putting um, uh, uh, more students in the seats um, but how do we have an environment that is an open welcoming supportive environment and I think that the rest of higher ed can really learn from that. Well, Bertus Robinson, thank you for taking the time to be on the Compact Nation podcast today. It was a joy to talk to you, and I learned a lot. So I think our listeners will, too. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, thanks again to our guest, Bertus Robinson, for such a great interview. Andrew, you were the person who initially suggested we bring Bertus onto the show. So what were your thoughts on our conversation? Well, one one thought I had, and this was one of the reasons I was eager to have Virtus on, in addition to his expertise and his energy and his commitment and his insight, is his voice. So you, this didn't come up in the interview, but Virtus uh, actually studied vocal performance as an undergraduate. He's trained as an opera singer, a countertenor. Yeah, this is true. I'm not making this up. Virtus has told me all about this. And... Yeah, he entered, I think, as a baritone and then was um, converted into a countertenor while he was an undergraduate. And I think seriously contemplated, you know, a professional music career before deciding to pursue his interest in history and uh, and becoming a faculty member. And so I just enjoyed listening to Virtus because I could listen to his voice endlessly. I would um, agree. Yeah, I when I was listening back to the interview, I, I was just amazed by how well his voice flowed and I felt like he was singing to me, but I didn't, I didn't want to make that comment. So I'm glad you said that because I actually really enjoyed the sound and tone of his voice. It was very soothing. Uh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, sorry. No, that's, that's great. And I, yeah, so I, um, I, you know, am a person who finds myself in meetings a lot. And I guess the evidence of my life is that I have a more of a taste for meetings than most people do. But uh, it is always a pleasure when I am in a meeting that Virtus is also in, which happens with some frequency, because as I think you heard, he has just such a clarity about the distinctive role of community colleges and the positive place they have in our higher education landscape. And, you know, I, again, I think the, the, the message that he brings about the ways that students from their own communities working through higher education institutions that are integrated into those communities, that there is a special kind of power in that work. One thing I do want to emphasize is that obviously we see elements of this also in four-year institutions. In other words, I think we make a mistake when we assume or have this vision in our head that students 
at four-year institutions are always coming from someplace else. And I don't mean to say Virtus was not saying this, so that's not my point. But I think we sometimes kind of let ourselves off the hook by not being clear enough about the fact that frequently we have a mix of students, some from the communities where the institution is located, some coming from further afield. But I think, you know, getting better at uh, sort of building from the opportunities that those students create, students who have local knowledge and relationships, I think that's something that could inform a lot of work across higher education and that community colleges are already good at and already understand themselves to be doing. So that was one of the things I was really interested by. I agree. I also enjoyed the connection to last uh, time's episode with Susan Suzanne uh, Buglioni when she spoke about how community college students and in some ways non-traditional students are more poised to take on community engagement uh, activities because they are the community and that's the communities many of them have been raised in, they work in, raise their families in. And so that echo to Suzanne's uh, interview really spoke to me, but also as someone who is a storyteller and someone who is trained on oral histories, I really appreciated when he talked about the idea of the historical trail and the uprising of neighborhoods uh, in the 60s and that his students were able to map that out through stories because those were their lived experiences and that is their neighborhood. And it just reminded me how important it is when we think about stories and place um, the connection to those communities and the history with those communities, how important that is to create true community advocates who can help other people be pulled into those stories and understand the histories and context of those neighborhoods. Oh my gosh, I loved that example so much. That is, I, I've heard other ones. In fact, I'm in Cedar Rapids right now, as I mentioned, and there's been a kind of similar project here, a p- partnership between Co College and the Um, African-American Museum and, you know, unearthing the histories and communities that have been lost or erased over time is just such a great role. And what a great way to help students see the value of history and understanding it and make it come alive for them. I I just thought that was incredible. And yeah, you'll have students in your class who can contribute to that, who have lived more of that which, as you said, Andrew, is not only community colleges. And that's why I asked him the question about what what community colleges can help other colleges think about. Because, again, as you discussed with Suzanne, non-traditional is becoming more and more of a misnomer um, as it potentially overtakes traditional. And we all need to be thinking about how to create these opportunities for students who have different lives, families, different past experiences, different connections to the community. Um, I know in my own class where I teach a lot of non-traditional students, a lot of them have said that they used to be engaged with the community and then between having kids and working and trying to go back to school, they'd lost some of that and they really appreciated being able to re-engage through a course. So I think there's a ton of potential and I, I really loved how he described it, the examples he gave. And Andrew, as you said, just his clear love for community colleges is great and makes him such a wonderful advocate. And we need all of these different kinds of colleges and universities in our system for it to work. Yeah, I think it's actually, you know, when I think about what makes American higher education so successful overall, and again, I think there's just tremendous evidence of its success in the long run and its importance in the development of our country and a million other things. But when I think about why it is, I think one of the answers is the diversity of institutional types that we have fostered, the mix of public and private, of faith-based, of you know a whole range of kinds of institutions, but including the development of the community college system and you know the access point for so many people. And I certainly saw it when I was working at Rutgers Camden, so many of our students there were coming from community colleges, they had strong preparation. Many of them had, you know, really powerful stories about great teachers who had uh, just changed their lives and really locked them into their educational pathway. And you know, I think often, again, because they have uh, different kind of priorities, they're not research-focused institutions. The students are the reason they exist. The community is the reason they exist. 
that there was a kind of naturalness to community engagement in those places that that I knew about. And and I think, you know, again, having democracy commitment kind of reinvigorated and going out and being able to connect more institutions to this work, that's just tremendous, uh, tremendously important. And Virtus, I think, is doing a great job. Yeah, I really look forward to, you know, continuing to talk about our Campus Compact's collaborations with TDC and how we can work together. I think there's a lot of potential, and, and he's a great partner. Um, okay, so we told everybody a couple episodes ago that we're now going to be kind of alternating uh, Pop Culture Corner with sharing some resources, and this is a resource episode. But before we get to that, I real quick, since I missed last time, just have to interject that I was very excited to hear JR bring up American Horror Story. <laughs> Always. <laughs> I love it. And if you're not watching it, this season in particular is just horror clowns and a big meta commentary on our current political system that I yes. am enjoying so, so much. And, uh,. Well, JR, you, I don't want to give any spoilers. So I know, wait. I was going to say, as a mind, I haven't watched this week's yet, so no spoilers. No spoilers, but if you're not watching it, watch it. It's, it's fantastic and just has a lot, and it's not that scary. It really isn't. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, so we'll get right to resources, though, and... Um, uh, mine is, I, you know, I'm working more and more lately to help support campuses in really having constructive dialogue on campus in the community, thinking of ways to do that, guides for that, and um, have been using some of the issue guides from Everyday Democracy. So that's another organization that seeks to promote really doing demo- democracy and how they put it is helping communities talk and work together to create communities that work for everyone which sounds great to me but they have a lot of good issue guides um that help you have have discussions including um there's one on facing racism that's a six session discussion guide and i th- i think guides are very very helpful to making deliberative dialogues work and um just wanted to point people to another great resource for for such guides jared what do you got yeah so while we're in hurricane season i feel like every evening when i turn on the news there's a new tropical storm brewing in the atlantic headed toward the caribbean and you know we've had hurricane harvey irma now maria and we're just seeing utter destruction from these these massive hurricanes and What I'm also seeing is a knee-jerk reaction uh, from our campuses of students wanting to go to these places to volunteer or they want to collect items to send to these places like clothing or food and such. And I mean, multiple studies have been done that have indicated how unhelpful that actually is on the ground for individuals. uh, Who are actually there in, in the chaos of it all. And so I just want to send a reminder out to folks who are listening to this uh, and their students may be getting excited about collecting items. Nobody wants your stuff. I just want to be real honest about that. We know that. Nobody wants your your old sweatshirt or, or any of that. What they really need is money. Um, multiple studies have done that. NPR has covered um, multiple episodes focused on this. And so there are a few places, uh, a couple national, the United Way and Red Cross have funds to go toward hurricane victims. I know not everyone feels comfortable donating to national organizations like that. I know I have my own kind of um, conflicts around that, but there are really great funds that have been set up locally. So I want to point out to folks if they aren't already aware that for the Hurricane Harvey Fund that was set up by Mayor Sylvester Turner, where you can actually just Google Mayor Sylvester Turner's Hurricane Harvey Fund, and you can find a place where you can donate directly, and those funds go directly to the folks in Houston to help with hurricane relief. And then as far as Florida goes, um, Governor Rick Scott has set up a fund through the Volunteer Florida Foundation called the Florida Disaster Fund. So if you just Google that, that's another place where you can send monetary donations to help. I know oftentimes students may be thinking, oh, I don't have really the means. I only have like 10 bucks I can give. But there are really great savvy peer-to-peer campaigns out there. Uh, you know, like GoFundMe is an easier one. Easy one. There are things like Classy.org, where peer-to-peer campaigns can be set up. And you know, if you had a student group and each student raised 50 bucks from their friends and family, and that's all combined together, and then you donate to one of these uh, 
these funds, that can really go a long way. So I just want to encourage our students, faculty, and staff to think a little differently about how we are helping people out who are on the ground in these devastated areas. Yeah, well, as I sit, um, you know, less than a mile from the river in Cedar Rapids that flooded in 2008 and led to me spending three years of my life doing disaster recovery, I have to agree that um, that generally unsolicited donations are are a big problem for those working in, in disasters. And unless you have a specific uh, person you're working with or group you're working with that's made a specific request, it's better to think about funds, to think about long-term support. That's my other plug is that a community like Houston is going to need support for um, a, more for a decade, probably more. So there will be lots of time and there will be lots of time after most of the media has gone and sort of the national attention has worn off. So if you want to help Houston, there will be lots of opportunities. Andrew, what do you got today? Well, I am excited to report about a new book that was just published by the American Political Science Association called Teaching Civic Engagement Across the Disciplines. And the book is edited by a group of political scientists, Elizabeth Maddow, Allison McCartney, Elizabeth Benyon, and Dick Simpson. And uh, so there's a little bit of a self-plug in here because... Uh, my colleague here uh, at Compact Headquarters, Maggie Grove, and I co-authored one of the chapters in this book about the role of campus planning and building an environment for teaching uh, students civic and democratic skills. But there's a, a, just a really strong group of authors of the chapters in this book. Uh, I think it's a follow-up volume to an earlier book that APSA published that was just focused on teaching civic engagement within political science. Uh, so it, this broadens it out across the disciplines. Uh, I think it would be a really useful resource for folks on campuses, for individual faculty members, people running centers, et cetera. If you go to apsanet.org, you can find it, or you can Google teaching civic engagement across the disciplines. And, uh, and the book is free. That's the other point. So it's up online. You can download it for various e-readers, et cetera. Um, and, and yeah, no cost to get your hands on it. And I'll just mention it by way of preview of another resource. We've been involved in a kind of ongoing informal collaboration with the American Political Science Association, the AACNU, and the Higher Learning Commission, the largest regional accrediting body in the United States that accredits institutions from a region that is the Midwest plus a lot of other stuff on both sides of the Midwest. And with HLC, we have been working on a, a resource that will enable campuses that are pursuing a quality initiative as part of their reaccreditation process and who want to focus that quality initiative on civic engagement. We are producing a kind of annotated version of the, the document that you need to use to create your quality initiative proposal that will show kind of all the resources that are available to answer the various questions that are part of developing that proposal. So as institutions look toward reaccreditation, if at this moment in our nation's history they think this is the time for us to refocus on building the civic capacity of our students and our communities, this resource should be really helpful to them in thinking about developing a quality initiative that will do that. It should be available quite soon uh, on our website with a link from the Higher Learning Commission's website. And so we're really excited about that. We think it can be really useful to institutions as they go through that process. Fantastic. Andrew, we neglected on the front end to do where is Andrew? Because honestly, it's gotten a little boring. <laughs> I, I know. I am. Um, so I'm first of all, I'm going to do better. I promise you that in the uh, the months ahead, I will be all over the place. There's a little bit of a summer downtime, I'm, you know, a couple trips here and there. I am just back. As I mentioned, I was I was heading to Baltimore for this meeting of the North American Society of Philosophical Hermeneutics. And I will say um, really interesting conversations. W one thing I'll say is that I I noticed in that group and, you know, philosophical hermeneutics, rather abstract idea, science of interpretation, et cetera. But there was a really great interest among the people there in really thinking through the role of interpretation in our current political predicament and the ways that 
the difficulties people are having listening to each other and interpreting each other in ways that are generous and uh, kind of true to the other person, et cetera, that the way those things are showing up in our politics. So that was really interesting to me. Um, and I also just noticed people were really interested. I was kind of making the case that folks interested in thinking about these issues should be engaging their students in practical work that requires them to practice those kinds of interpretive skills and then creates opportunity for reflection on them, et cetera. And, you know, I think mostly these were people who are used to teaching in ways that are about reading books and talking about the books. And they were really open to thinking about different approaches. And I, I had some folks who were interested in following up. So um, that's a shout out to the North American Society for Philosophical Hermeneutics and their openness, uh, which is consistent with their own approach to listening and thinking differently about their their own work. Can you say that five times fast? <laughs> I, I cannot. I cannot. Yeah. <laughs> I just learned what, what it was last time. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know if I get it, but anyway. <laughs> um, no, that is that is cool. I, I do like philosophy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think that's a good note to end on. Um, so we'll be back uh, in just a quick two weeks talking about culture change. I'm actually interviewing Dr. Stephen Black from Impact America tomorrow so look forward to that and we'll see you next time bye bye season two of the compact nation podcast is produced by naval Mahdi for the campus compact headquarters in boston massachusetts and its 1100 colleges and universities around the globe all rights reserved learn more about campus compact at compact.org the hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Hey, Habiba. What does a pig think of the Compact Nation podcast?